Well, today is the next to the last sermon in book one of this series in Psalm. And I ask you now, if you would, please stand for the reading of Psalm 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song. We thank you for the truths that you proclaim, the hope that is inside of these words, the reality of our sin in contrast to your love and your righteousness. Father, help us to sing like David here. Help us to hold on to Christ singing these words on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. You may be seated. It seems like every time that I prepare a sermon on a psalm, I, I look at the psalm and I go, oh, this one's it. This one does a great summary. This one is got everything we need. It packages it all really well for us. And, and again, I'm going to say it again for this psalm also. It is a really good psalm for us as a tool for us in understanding how to approach God in multiple places of our life. But primarily... I think it is a tool for us to know how to sing our repentance to the Lord. Martin Luther, his first theses, when he nailed the theses on the door in Wittenberg, he had stated this truth, that our repentance, oops, just lost it here. When the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Now, when we consider what he said there, that the proclamation of Jesus's first sermon to the world, once he came to the world, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that Luther is saying that he intended for us to live a life of repentance. Now, I grew up in a church and in a culture that talked a lot about making a decision for Jesus and to repent of our sins and then to become a member of the church. But the way that things were packaged to me early in my life, that it was this this one-time major event of our life where we would repent and believe and be converted. Now, it is good for those who are not living lives of repentance and those who are not following after Jesus to be converted, to have a transition, to come to an acknowledgement of our sin. But the way things were taught to me early on in my childhood, and I think many others, was that that was this moment that we kind of hold on to and we look back to as being our salvific moment, that that was the time. Even maybe more so than even dwelling upon the actual work of Christ on the cross. That we had to remember when that happened. I was asked many times, do you remember the date and the time when you did that? And then in my confusion, I often did it multiple times, <laughs> trying to make sure that I got it right because I was so worried that I, something I did fell short from what I was being taught was that thing. And then it was such a refreshment for me when I saw Luther say that this life of repentance is what he intended for us. Not a life of continual sin and coming back to it over and over again, that it was just this license to live as we desire and then come back to constant repentance, but that it would be a constant life on this earth of striving with sin, crying out to God continually for his mercies, being in a posture of acknowledging our weaknesses before God. If I had a particular title for this sermon today, I would call it Cry While Waiting. And it is our posture. It is our posture as Christians in this age for our time before we are with the Lord in full 
to be crying while waiting. And I think that that, that might be a good title in summary for what all of the Psalms ultimately are. To be crying out to the Lord. When we cry, we are showing a weakness. We are making a proclamation. Sometimes there's such diversity in our crying. Sometimes it's a whimper. Sometimes it's in silence. Sometimes we cry out loud in desperation or even in anger and in frustration. But the Psalms are teaching us to cry, to know how to cry, to have that level of vulnerability before the Lord, one that we are weak and often we are overcome by our sin. But to be crying while waiting, it's one thing to cry in hopelessness. It's one thing to cry in despair without any kind of anticipation that there is going to be rescue. But the Psalms teach us to cry while waiting and teaches us all kinds of different ways to cry and gives us a lot of reasons why we should wait. Think about what it means to to wait. If you're waiting, there is anticipation. I just this past weekend, I went to pick up Knox from a game night at the Cottrell's. And I was texting him as I was coming in and I said, I'm about to pick you up. And then I pulled up in front of the Cottrell house and it looked like it was settled for the night. And I saw no people moving inside. And I was thinking, am I at the right place? Am I... Did I get the instruction wrong? Was the game night somewhere else? And so what did I start doing? I was recounting in my mind, what did Knox say or what did Jennifer say about where this game night was going to be? Because Knox acknowledged my text. I said, I'm outside, I'm, I'm here to pick you up. And I didn't see him for a bit, but I was waiting on him. And then I was like, yeah, I, I am certain that I was told that it is at the Cottrell house. So I'm going to sit here a little longer and I'm going to wait, even though there are not signs of any movement in the house, I'm going to hold fast for a little bit at least (laughs) um, and see if I see a human being. And sure enough, within a few moments, I think I saw Luke go past and then I saw Knox and then he came on outside. But what was going on there? One, I had anticipation based upon some kind of proclamation. I had trusted that those words were true and accurate, and I waited. And that is what the Psalms is telling us to do as we cry out in different levels of response to life, different levels of response to our own weakness, different levels of response to our own sin, to cry out to God while waiting. Instead of the title of my sermon being a good summary, this first verse, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Again, I think that in every element of our life, we need to be constantly living a life of crying while waiting. If we stop waiting, we stop trusting. If we stop crying, we are not in the right posture of our waiting. 
There are ways to wait upon something. I often remember when I was a child, when, there's a lot of birthday parties lately, and I remember telling my parents all the different things that I would want for my birthday. And I would wake up. I think I've told you this story before. I don't know why I did this so often. I'd wake up, and I often looked out into the driveway when I was a teenager to see if there was a car there. I'm like, well, surely they know that I want a car, and it'll just be there because <laughs> I want it so badly. Nothing that they ever had said to me promised me that they would give me a new vehicle. But I just presumptuously waited upon my desires to find some level of fulfillment. It wasn't waiting upon any kind of reality. It was a presumption upon my desire. But in my weakness, I could look back and I could think, you know, there's no promises of that. They do promise me that they'll take care of me and they'll feed me and that they'll love me. And they did and they had and my mom still does. So the first thing here is really the summarization for all of the psalm and is to cry while waiting. But there are different things to do here. And I think that as we break down this psalm just a little bit. I want to go a little bit back upon what David was likely thinking about when he wrote it. And then I want to go, just like I did before, go into the New Testament of how the New Testament reveals to us and throws light on the ultimate fulfillment of what this psalm is based upon or what our hope is in this psalm. The second thing that we need to be remembering is to know that you have been saved, what you have been saved from, and what you have been saved to. It says that he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. As we cry out to the Lord for his help, as we cry out to the Lord for his rescue, we need to understand exactly the depths of what his rescue entails. Now, David, from what I can understand from the commentators, they don't really know for certain exactly what specific thing that he was thinking about. They could be thinking about circumstances that there's so many things, as David even says in his own psalm, for him to count where the Lord's mercies are there for him. So they don't really attribute one particular thing, but we can attribute that God has saved us ultimately from the most miry bog that we have, which is our sin. As I was reading about miry bogs in the Bible, you may recall the story of Jeremiah when they put him in a truly a miry bog, in a pit. And it said that he sunk down. It was a cistern that he put him in. They put him in because he was proclaiming the judgments of the Lord. And when they put him inside of it, they said that it, was, it didn't have water in it, but it had mud in it. And he just sunk down in the mud before they rescued him out of it. And I love that imagery. <laughs> if you know your sin, you know that that is very much what sin is like. It had to be dark. There was hopelessness in that place. And he was just sunk down in it and it just covered him up. And we can see later on in the second part of this psalm where David is talking about how his sins and his transgressions are just all around him. So we need to know what we've been saved 
from and what we've been saved to. It's not just a matter of understanding the depths of what our sin was like, but where did God left us? See, it says that he was set upon the rock, that his feet were secure upon a rock. He was not left to a place of just emptiness or nothingness, but he went from the mud, the mire, the bog, the pit of destruction to a place that was secure, that he could identify, that he could stand upon, that he could, he could grasp. And we begin to see what that is further and further in the proclamation of this particular psalm. It says, he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our God, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. We see here that that security is in God, in God himself is where he has been placed, that he has footing there. And he is secure. And because of that, he is going to praise and proclaim to all who can hear to put your trust in the Lord. Now, I want to pause in this first little stanza here to go back and think a little bit about where David must have been thinking, first of all, about this psalm. Because in the third stanza, when it's talking about sacrifice and offering, it's going back to, first of all, going back to Saul. Now, I'm, I'm a little ahead of myself in bringing him up, but I wanted to highlight something that goes on in... Uh, moving my notes. I made different kind of note format today, and now I'm confusing myself. In 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, the, it begins in that chapter by Samuel coming to Saul and saying to him, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the word of the Lord. Now, this is not a chronological account that this was, that he was at the point of anointing him king at that point. He was reminding Saul where he had been placed by God. And as we think about when God has rescued us from our sin, we need to be reminded that he has set us now on the rock that he has set us on Jesus. In many ways, this psalm is proclaiming to one another as we sing this psalm to one another to remind you, you have now been appointed upon a place, a specific place, a rock. Now, later on, if you're familiar with that story, you'll know that Saul disobeyed God. And then when Samuel came back to Saul, he says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. It is imperative, brothers and sisters, that as you consider your salvation from the Lord, that you do not forget where you have been placed. You have been placed upon Jesus for a purpose. Again, I'm getting my head of myself, but where Saul failed was not to view, first of all, 
the greatness of the calling that he had. Samuel tells Saul, though you view yourself as little. Now you might think, well, why did Saul think that? He was a king. Well, as Luther has reminded us time and time again, Satan is a liar. One of the things that we have done today by coming together to proclaim the goodness of the Lord is to remind you of the greatness of your calling upon where you have been set. Not to remind you how great you are, but because you have been set upon a great rock, we're here to remind one another that you have been purchased for a purpose. I sometimes joke with people when they can't remember our young men's discipleship um, schedule. It's the second and the fourth. And I like to say it's to and for the Lord. Our purposes in discipleship is to the Lord and for the Lord. We have a calling now in our salvation. A lot of times, and you see this a lot when it comes to ministries, recovery ministries, that they talk a lot about what the Lord saved them from, saved us from this addiction or this kind of destruction or this kind of lifestyle, and how we praise God for what the Lord has saved us from. And then it kind of stops there. There's not as much proclamation about where to go from from there. And so a lot of times that kind of addiction is just replaced by some other kind of addiction, some kind of other worldly attempt to bring glory unto yourself. Whereas God has purchased us not to think of ourselves as little, but to think of us set on a rock. If Saul would have thought about what great calling he had been given, maybe he would have listened to the Lord more fully. You have been saved from a pit of destruction and set upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And so you have a new song in your mouth. Your new song is not based upon just the recounting of what the Lord had done in the past, but the new song is about the greatness of the Lord and what he has done. When people hear about your new song in the rock that you're in, they should respond like what David says people are responding as. It says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That is another problem we have in this culture. We basically take the glory of God and what he has done for us in our salvation and we make it about us. About how great we are. When people hear our proclamation of the salvation of God, they should see and fear the Lord. They should become closer into understanding his great righteousness and his great mercies. That it should be evangelistic about who the Lord is, not about who we are in of ourselves. It says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not trust to the, he does not turn to the proud and to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. 
yet they are more than can be told. We live in an age where people have taken away from the, the, the public square, the proclamation that God is love, and we say love is love, and we just leave it undefined for however we choose. If we're going to proclaim the great wondrous deeds and his thoughts and love toward us, we must proclaim what he says about himself. We must proclaim the things that he has done. We must proclaim his law and his truth. The Psalm 40 is really kind of broken up into, most people say it's in two different types of themes. That it's first of all thanksgiving and then it's lament. I think it's thanksgiving and lament and then it merges thanksgiving inside of that lament before it closes. And so it's kind of a three-parter that there's this praise, but there's still this lamenting, this repenting, this acknowledgement of where the heart is in this repentance. And so I think that as we look at the breakdown, we can see that there's a hinge point right here in the middle. And I believe from how it's treated in Hebrews, the next few verses is really the centerpiece of the whole psalm. We have in verse 6, it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Those three verses are really mysterious to me. And I encourage you that the only way I think to get the fullness of what's going on in this psalm is to dwell on those three verses, but to dwell on the passages that are attached to those three verses. One is 1 Samuel 10 on the account of Saul. The other is Psalm 51, which is probably the most popular psalm of repentance that we have in the whole of the psalm books. And then the other is Hebrews chapter 10, where the writer of Hebrews is touching on this particular psalm and recounting it as he is instructing the church. Now, I cannot get all of that in into a sermon, and I know you're probably saying we don't want you to bring it all into the sermon today. But there's a fullness that you'll see in that, and it's mysterious because they almost seem, if you just went, if you didn't have Psalm 40, and you, you kind of read them just by themselves, or read at least 1 Samuel 10 and um, Hebrews 10 separately, you wouldn't see the merger very easily. It would actually seem kind of confusing. Because you have to remember, just like the very beginning of Hebrews 10 says, that these were a shadow to what was to come. And just with like with any kind of shadow, you can't make out all of the details. You just see a shadow. I mean, I'm looking right now at TJ's shadow, and it's kind of a funny look because, you know, the light's coming in in a certain way. But it is a shadow of TJ, but I can't make it. I couldn't describe to you what TJ looks like just by looking at his shadow. I can get just a general idea. And I would say that if it wasn't for the fact that the Word of God is inspired, by the time we get to Hebrews, 
I would think that if any pastor was trying to preach Hebrews 10 and it not being the inspired word of God, I'm like, I think you're stretching it a bit. I don't see that in the shadow like you see it. But we can find confidence by the time we get to Hebrews 10 that the fullness of the word of God is being laid out in a variety of different ways. And the answer to is it this or is it this or is it this? The answer would be yes. So you're probably like, what is he talking about? First of all, in, in the Samuel passage, David is clearly aware of the dialogue that occurred between Saul and Samuel before he was anointed to be king, before David was anointed to be king. In the situation that occurred in 1 Samuel 10 that took away the kingship of Saul. Again, I'm, I'm kind of giving you a lot of things. If you haven't read 1 Samuel 10, you might be confused right now. If you can't remember 1 Samuel 10, you might be confused. You're just going to have to go back and, and read 1 Samuel 10. But in that particular account, Samuel comes to Saul and he tells them that he needs to go and destroy the Amalekites. Amalekites. And he needs to destroy everything. Every single human being, man, woman, children, donkey, cow, cross the board, wipe out every living thing. And so Saul goes about his task to do it, and they go in. He has a huge number of people, I guess a couple hundred thousand people that come in, and they make war with the Amalekites, and they go in and they destroy Nearly everything. And hence the problem. Nearly everything. He saved the best of the animals. He held them back. The best from his understanding. And the dialogue between Saul and Samuel, you really got to study I think it is just an ideal picture of just how we operate with God. I know that David, based upon how he's merging this in with Psalm 51, I know there's a humility for him to highlight this. Even though because of what happens, he gets to become king, I know that he feels the same way and often at times. Samuel comes to Saul and says, Did you do what you were told to do? Did you listen to the Lord? And Saul says, sure did. I did what I was told to do. And then Samuel says, what's that I'm hearing? I'm hearing things. I'm hearing oxen and sheep. Where'd those come from? He's like, ah, (laughs) we're gonna use those to worship the Lord. Now, we do that all the time. Before we go too deep into, you know, I feel bad for Saul. Because I know we do this all the time. The Lord encounters us in our life and he says, have you done what you're supposed to do? Have you been listening to my word? Did you follow through? And we're like, yes, we did, Lord. I'm doing this. Look at what I've done. I'm taking, I'm taking this role that you've given me. I've taken this this salvation that you've given me. I've taken this, this calling as a Christian that you've given me and I'm, I'm serving you with it, Lord. I'm bringing it for your glory. 
But we, we're not, it's not matching up. I mean, it seems so clear when we read 1 Samuel 10. It's highlighted in such a way that it's obvious. And, and Samuel makes it very obvious. He says, no, you haven't done it all. And so as Saul starts giving those excuses that, yes, I'm doing it. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing just, just what I'm supposed to He says, stop. Just stop. Stop with all of this. And he says, you're going to lose your kingship because of what you've done. And Saul's attempt or some kind of manufactured repentance, we see that he's still wanting glory for himself. He, first, he blames the people and he says, it's because I listened to them, it's because I feared them that I did this. What does that sound like? <laughs> Sounds like Adam. Tell like what Adam did. Because of these people that you put me in charge of. And it says in the very beginning of 1 Samuel 10, it says, Saul and the people saved these animals. Saul was actively involved in some form of failure of following through. The reason why I think we have this psalm written the way it is by David is that he wants us to go back and read that account because he's reading that account. And he's remembering that account. And he's contrasting what should be done and what he has done. He did repent differently than Saul. But we know from reading Psalm 51, if you go and read Psalm 51, there's a lot of overlap of Psalm 51 going on with Psalm 40 when he is confessing to the Lord his sin when he sinned against the kingdom against God when he had the adulterous affair and murderous affair with Bathsheba. He's thinking about his own sin. Now, this is a good lesson for us in knowing how to approach sin. A lot of times because if we think, we think true hum humility is not highlighting God's law. We go, it's all about grace, it's all about mercy, It's all about, you know, his forgiveness. I don't, we don't need to go there and recount those kind of things. But I think that David is showing us a tremendous maturity of how to go about this crying while waiting, this repentance while trusting the Lord, that he is remembering accounts of God's word. He's remembering the accounts of God's deeds with humility with an openness of showing that I am in this same place in many ways, but I also am blessed when I trust the Lord. Because it's not just about what he's been saved from. Again, it's about what he's been saved for. Those three particular verses are the words that Samuel said to Saul. When Saul was talking about, hey, we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to have a sacrifice of these good animals. And Samuel said to him, what's more important? These sacrifices? These corrupt sacrifices? Or obedience? 
And so in the account of Samuel, it is highlighted when we look at these passages that the Lord is not satisfied with corrupt sacrifices, that he desires obedience. Now be careful in just that alone, not to erase that part about obedience. A lot of us, by the time we get to Hebrews, we forget 1 Samuel 10, and we like to just think about, he doesn't care about sacrifices. He doesn't care about the old law. He doesn't care about the things of the past. That wasn't important. It's all about mercy. It's all about grace. But there's a lesson here that we need to remember just like David did. David had not forgotten what God really ultimately wants. But he is remembering what Samuel said, that he desires obedience and trust in the commandments and the law of God. That is why David says, your law is written in my heart. That is why he recounts, he says, the scroll of the book It is written of me. There's not a lot of certainty what he meant there in that particular verse. He may be talking about Deuteronomy 17 where it talks about the purity of sacrifice and also the calling of kings. He may be thinking about the situation that is going to... I did not take the time to look and see on the chronological timeline of when Samuel was written versus the psalm. But he may be remembering that particular account. But he's thinking about God's word. And he's thinking about the truths of how he interacts with God's word. And he's saying that your law is written in my heart. But fast forwarding or going into Psalm 51, he quotes the same words that were said there in Psalm 40 and also in 1 Samuel 10. But it changes a little bit. Give me just a moment to catch my grip here. It says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. He's taking those same words that Samuel gave Saul in that circumstance of sin, and he is owning those words and understanding that what God ultimately wants is what Saul did not give, which was a broken heart of repentance. God first wants obedience. We can't do obedience apart from Jesus Christ. We can't do obedience apart from repentance. We can't do obedience apart from first having God's law written on our hearts. David shows us in Psalm 51 that what God wanted from Saul at that moment and what David did come to grips with when Nathan accused him of his sin, that he had to be broken. He had to come to that understanding of that miry pit that he dug for himself. And then there's the response. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord. It goes from that understanding to that repentance 
to that proclamation of what the Lord has done, but it is within and for a purpose amongst his people. That he is going to proclaim what the Lord has done amongst the great congregation. He repeats it multiple times in that psalm. And then as he goes to the end of that psalm, he recounts again his sin. He's going back and he's remembering how he sinned before. And we can have that understanding by reading Psalm 51. But then there's this life of coming to an acknowledgement of this continued remembrance of our weakness before the Lord. And I know that this is the model that God intends for us because of what he gives us in Hebrews chapter 10. But in Hebrews chapter 10, it doesn't just leave us with that shadow. It doesn't just leave us with that shadow of what is going on with David and what's going on with Saul. In Hebrews chapter 10, We are being told from verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. By the time we get to Hebrews, it almost seems like it's a whole other lesson to be learned. It's all focusing on Jesus Christ. It almost seems removed from the situation of Saul and from the situation of David. But what is actually ultimately happening here is that it is bringing forth the foundation of hope for those particular situations of sin. See, it's bringing it all together in Jesus Christ. It is true that God is not satisfied by those sacrifices, even the right sacrifices. But what he is satisfied is in what those sacrifices pointed toward. Then this particular passage in the recounting of it, when Jesus recounts it, it is about him. It is about him being the sacrifice. In that one verse, it's very interesting. It says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Well, if we go back and read the other accounts, and there in Psalm 40 particularly, it seems to be talking about opening up an ear. It It doesn't even really seem related to anything about a body being prepared. Well, that's the amazing thing about the mystery of this particular passage. In Psalm 40, it is focused on an ear being opened up. About being able to hear the word of the Lord. Because what was Saul's problem? Saul's problem was not listening to God's word. Not responding to God's word. 
Some commentators say that it's even the way that it's written, that it's not just about opening up your ears so that you can hear, but that the way that it's written, that the meaning of servitude is there because it says that you bore my ear. It's actually talking about becoming a slave to the Lord, that our whole life is given to the service of the Lord. And then when we get to Hebrews, Hebrews is interpreting that particular passage to say that Jesus was taking on a body that was going to be sacrificed in servitude to his father. It is developing that passage in a fullness that I could not imagine doing just through some kind of artistic response or some kind of making it up as I go. God is showing us the fullness of this passage is way beyond even the understanding that Saul would have understood when it was first told to him, that David would have understood when he was recounting the situation that ultimately that the one who truly hears the word of the Lord and responds to the word of the Lord, the one who truly became a servant on our behalf, was the one who truly became the necessary sacrifice that would only be the sacrifice that the Father would be satisfied in. There's, I really don't believe that there's enough in Psalms or in Samuel alone to get that. We have to have Hebrews 10 to see the fullness of what's going on in that. And then now we are able in this side of the resurrection to go back and to sing that psalm with a fullness that maybe even beyond what David could ever comprehend at that point. To go back and learn the lessons of our human nature of how we respond to God when we start giving our lame brain excuses for not obeying his word. But to have this hope that Jesus did obey the word. Then we can go back and we can look at how David, that even David as he was being a disciple of the Lord and he was contemplating how to sing the psalm that he wrote, that he did it with humility and a continual crying out to the Lord about his own weaknesses and his own sin. Understanding what the Lord had set him forth to be and to do and for the purposes of how he was to stand upon this rock that was still a mystery to him. And we can know that it is Jesus that took on all of these things and that it wasn't just David that it was written about in the scroll of the book, that Jesus was the one that it was written about in the scroll of the book. But read all of Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 10. I've tried to condense it as best I can within a few minutes that I have. But go back and what did the writer of Hebrews tell them to do with this? To one, to understand that Jesus is our hope of salvation. That because of that, that all of those shadows have now passed away. And we can see the fulfillment of the reality of who Jesus is. But then he tells us. To go and proclaim it amongst the congregation.
He's using the same model over and over again that we see throughout the scriptures. That the psalm is creating for us, Psalm 40 and Psalm 51, keeps telling us to go and proclaim the greatness of the Lord amongst the congregation. To proclaim it in such a way that those who will hear and see will fear the Lord and will learn to trust him. Brothers and sisters, we are being told right now that we need to stay home and praise the Lord from our bedrooms and our living rooms. And by doing that, we are not able to fulfill the fullness. There's no way you can read Psalm 40 or sing Psalm 40 or Psalm 50 in faithfulness continually by just staying in your living room or praising God from your car or your bedroom in your pajamas. You coming here today to proclaim the goodness of the Lord is to declare to one another, to remind one another of the goodness of the Lord, to remind one another of what their calling is and what this rock is all about. Children, you are daughters, you are sons, you are sisters. Those are proclamations of calling that are given to you, not just by nature, but by God. And they have responsibility given to it, attached to it, that are called out in God's word. Every single one of you children, you have a responsibility not to be like Saul and to think of your calling as little. Because in the proclamation, in the fulfillment of you now on this side of the resurrection with a hope in Christ, You can proclaim the goodness of the Lord by fulfilling your calling in obedience to your parents, in love and long-suffering with your siblings. Husbands and wives, do not consider your calling little. You have been given a calling to proclaim the wondrous might of the Lord through your faithfulness to your calling as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers. Fellow church members, you have been given a calling. You have been saved from the miry pit and set on a rock with a particular calling. The temptation that Saul had will also come to you to think of your particular callings as little and to use your particular callings to bring about your own comforts and glories. Do not fail like Saul. Remember what Jesus has done to establish you upon that rock. The writer of Hebrews says, do not trample Jesus Christ by continuing to sin when you have now the fulfillment of that shadow in Jesus Christ. Co-workers, employers, employees, managers. You have been given a particular calling and role to fulfill the fullness of the kingdom by your following through with your callings so that the goodness and the might and the wonder of the Lord will be proclaimed. Some of you have been given an opportunity 
through some kind of establishment in the Lord's providence to have influences on certain people. You may have certain friends. You may have strangers in your community. You may have co-workers. You may have giftings and abilities to be able to reach out to different people. Do not look at your calling as little. Because you have been saved. You have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you are now set on a rock and you are not your own. You have been given the kingship of Jesus Christ and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Something Saul could have never have imagined. Don't look at Saul and say, well, he was a king. When, you have been pro- when it's been proclaimed in God's word that you have the inheritance and the sonship of the king of kings. Be humble and cry out to the Lord, knowing that in your own strength you cannot accomplish this. But by trusting in his word, as the Hebrew writer tells us, we can fulfill obedience in Christ. We can proclaim his goodness and his truth. We can proclaim the good news of the Lord by looking exactly what you have been given. There is no one in this room that does not have a special ministry calling that is as great as Saul's. I don't know if I just said all that right. I stretched it out too long. I hope that made sense what I just said. Your calling is no less than Saul's. (laughs) Every one of you, Mac, your calling in the Lord is as great as Saul, and if not greater. Henry, your calling in the Lord, it is great. Do not look at your calling as little, because your calling has been purchased by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,